0: you're listening to the careers talk podcast series assault studios production It's difficult to become a leader in any business in your early 20s. But it's not impossible to do, and Nicole Brown is proof of that. At just 20, she became the CEO of RoboGirls, an international not-for-profit organisation dedicated to inspire, engage and empower young women to pursue engineering. In this episode, Nicole Brown discusses how she landed that position at such a young age and how it helped further her career in robotics and engineering. Nicole Brown, at the ripe old age of 20, you were the CEO of RoboGals. Can you explain to me what that is and what that involved?
1: RoboGals is an international not-for-profit organisation that aims to inspire, empower and engage young women in engineering. So I guess that's the tagline, but what it actually means is it's an organisation that sets up communities at universities of students and young professionals that want to see diversity in the the engineering industry. So there's communities set up at universities that provide opportunities for the volunteers to not only meet each other and support each other, but also go out to primary schools, high schools, external clubs and, and groups to be able to teach girls in particular around what engineering is, what engineers do, and to provide them with role models to see what they could become.
0: How would you find the opportunity at such a young age to become a CEO of a not-for-profit?
1: It's not something that I thought would come across um, as an opportunity. So while I was in my first year of university, we had uh, the founder of RoboGirls come in through to a lecture to see if anyone was interested in volunteering to teach young girls about robotics. Now, if I'm being perfectly honest, I didn't have much of an interest in robotics at that time. But the idea of teaching young girls about engineering was something that I was quite interested in and the opportunity was to spend five days in Ballarat in Western Victoria um, teaching girls. And I lived out west and I went, fantastic, okay, it's a, it's a good opportunity. So I went and it was a week that changed my life really. We went out, we taught um, robotics workshops to about 300 students in that week. I went out with four male volunteers representing RoboGirls because it's not just for females. I guess because of that, I became the the unofficial leader of the group. So the girls had someone to look up to and identify with. And from there, I loved it so much, I decided to get involved with the organization. So I took on a role in the University of Melbourne RoboGirls Committee, organizing similar trips around the state. So... Over the next 12 months, I organised seven rural trips to different locations and sent volunteers out to inspire girls in rural towns. And after 12 months, I was actually approached by the founder of the organisation to ask if I was interested in applying for the CEO position. Uh, She was looking to step down after running the organisation for quite a few years at that point and and looking to hand it over. So I was very honoured and surprised I guess to be approached when the opportunity came up something that I asked myself was if I said no would I regret it and the answer was yes of course I'd regret it so even though I was 20 at the time I knew I had to do it yeah I made, made the decision to apply and and I was successful and started in yeah 2013.
0: What was the application process like?
1: So it was, I'd say it's very similar to a job application process in terms of I had to write, I had to provide my CV, I had to write a cover letter. And then I went through an interview process with the two founders, which was really to understand who I was as a person, what I saw for the organization and whether I was passionate to be able to show that this was what I wanted to do. And perfectly honest I was 20 years old I didn't know anything about business I didn't know anything about board directors and profit and loss statements but my passion clearly showed through and it's something that I I still although I don't have an active role in the organization now it's I have such a love and such an admiration for the people involved yeah I just it's such a great organization to have been a part of
0: and had the opportunity to lead. Absolutely. So as the CEO, once you realised what was involved, what was needed of you, did you then sort of start working out what you wanted to achieve over your time?
1: It was. It was the baptism of fire. It was the first few months figuring out, one, the scale of the organisation, having only worked with the local division in Victoria, in Melbourne, and having been to um, a regional conference which included people from across Australia That was really my understanding of the organization. So the first six months was very much going through and figuring out what is included in the organization, what my roles and responsibilities were and what needed to happen. And I had an amazing, amazing operations officer, Sam, come on board at the same time. So he took over from the other co-founder. So we were basically starting it together and the focus was changing it, I guess, from The founder's mindset to transitioning it to that sustainable organization and what processes needed to happen where was this information and I guess as we went through that process we were documenting as we went so we took it as the opportunity to really solidify what had happened what reasons that had happened and be able to translate it I definitely didn't do it by myself Uh, we were a team and from there, we we're able to build up, I guess, a support network and reintroduce or in- introduce new structures and ways of working. But it was a lot of it was learning as we went and being. Yeah, able to, to assess what was
0: needed. You must have got something right because uh, you had a team of a thousand volunteers. You expanded into 13 countries and 33 cities across five continents um, and you've inspired more than 50,000 women to to be involved in engineering. That's very, very impressive. How does that all happen from someone who is 20 in their first role as a leader to achieving that success?
1: Well, I think where we started, we were across five countries. So we for five to 13, I think 17 cities to 33. So there was a very good foundation uh, that had been established and a very good reputation that that the founder was able to build within, within the brand. So I guess the, the expansion side itself into new countries came organically. So we did have some targeted expansions where we decided North America, for example, was an area that we knew and we saw a lot of potential, so there was a lot of cold calling or reaching out to different people within faculties at universities that we thought would we could make an impact and we could benefit, uh, but a lot of it and some of it just happened organically. So, very interesting stories was when we expanded to the Philippines and it was a phone call that still sticks with me because she'd heard about our founder through, I think, a TED talk and so she reached out to say, I think this is something that could really benefit our community. And... I organized a call at the time the CEO was responsible for the expansion and having that initial call to be able to, I guess, understand viability is this something we want to put our resources into, noting that we're entirely volunteers, even myself as CEO was a volunteer. So we had to assess whether we had enough support to be able to make it happen. And the Philippines was a really interesting one because when I sort of spoke initially, was we usually run robotics workshops so you need robots you need computers so it has a relatively high startup cost and the the woman from the philippines i was talking to said that's not going to work here because a lot of the students we want to reach have never seen a computer i guess this is this is what i love about understanding and reaching out to more people around the world is that is something that i take for granted having been associate or around computers my entire life and it really allowed me to step back and go, okay, well, how can RoboGirls work for this community? So the volunteer from the Philippines, J-Rule, was amazing, and she really worked with us to understand what their needs were. We were able to define what the core values or what the core items that RoboGirls did needed to be in a workshop, and we were able to simplify it. And from, I guess, I think that was the initial starting point of RoboGirls expanding from just robots to other types of engineering, because we had that conversation that really opened our eyes to say, okay, well, it doesn't suit everyone everywhere. What are the core elements that make RoboGals RoboGals and what can we build from
0: there? We know you're very passionate about leadership and I guess you could make the argument that leading a team or staff is, yes, it presents challenges, but it's a whole new world when you're leading volunteers who don't actually have to be there. And you had a thousand of them. How did you do that?
1: It is a constant challenge in some points and the thousand volunteers was across the world. So I had a global team. Each of the regions had their own team and then each of the local divisions chapters had their own team. So from a global standpoint, it was one of my biggest challenges because RoboGals became my life. And I think at the start, I expected everyone else to feel the same way. And as a result, we had quite a few people at a global level leave because my expectations didn't meet what they were hoping. um, And I wasn't able to adjust quick enough And support them in what they were able to do um, or wanted to do so that's probably one of the biggest I guess mistakes that I've made in that role where the expectations I set were were unrealistic but I didn't take the opportunity to actually talk to them and say okay what are your goals what are your expectations of the role what do you want to achieve and I think that's so important When you're working with volunteers and it wasn't something that I knew at the time and I know that there's people that left because of that Um, but it is something that I make a point that any volunteer position I'm in now, whether I'm the leader or not, I'll reach out to people that I'm working with and just get a sense of who they are, what their interests are and why they're there because I think that's so important. When you're working with volunteers that don't have to do anything is to understand what they want to do and how can you best, I guess, utilize their passion within what you want to achieve?
0: When did you realize that you needed to make a move away from direct involvement in RoboGals?
1: It was not an easy decision at all. It was one that I thought about for quite a few months before I made the decision. Even when I said it out loud for the first time, which was in America at our regional conference, I made the announcement to everyone that was there, There's about 40 people, I think, and then I had to leave the room and burst into tears, <laughs> which I I didn't realize how emotional I was about it until I actually did that. And the reason for leaving for me was, I guess, twofold. One, that I was graduating and I was entering the workforce, so I wanted to put my focus 100% on my engineering career and decided that that was a good chance to be able to step away. But the second part of it was after leading the organisation for four years in an organisation that's continuously changing, I realised that I was saying no to things for the wrong reasons. I was saying no to new suggestions from new people that joined the organisation because it hadn't worked in the past. And I think that was a really eye-opening point for me to realise that It needed a fresh set of eyes, it needed more energy, it needed just a new perspective that didn't keep saying no for historic reasons. So to me, it was yeah, really the the two sides of it that made the decision, and it was the right decision. And we've had some amazing CEOs since me that have just taken the organization to incredible new levels. And I I presented at their awards night um, a few weeks ago and it was just amazing to see the numbers and the reach, the impact, the, the inspiration that they're still providing. And it's just, if anyone wants to volunteer, reach out because they are amazing.
0: So you've got degree in hand now. What's your next move?
1: When I got my degree, I was in a very unique position where I had a graduate job lined up. I got a cadetship through, uh, which I saw on in, in the Engineers Australia magazine, when i was at high school so i actually worked with an engineering consultancy throughout my entire degree and had a guaranteed job when i graduated so it was a very unique position i haven't heard of any other organizations that offer that sort of commitment and opportunity so i was graduating and going to work in an organization that i'd already been involved with for six years it wasn't a new environment for me but it definitely was a new experience going into it in a full-time capacity.
0: How did that differ from your work as a CEO for a not-for-profit and being a student?
1: It was very different. Even though I'd worked full-time over on my major breaks, I was now entering as a graduate engineer with no volunteering. And my hours now were, at that time, 9 to 5, 8.30 to 5. It wasn't, we didn't have the flexible working we have now, which is, I've only been in the industry. Five years, but five years ago in my first company, it was 8.30 to 5 and they were sort of, you got there, you worked, we had no laptops, we were purely desk-based and that was just what it was. I went to work, I did my work, I came home, I was working with senior engineers, with my managers, I was doing discrete tasks, uh, but I wasn't, I guess, involved with the bigger picture on a lot of things. It was it was the technical learnings and uh, really developing those those technical skills.
0: I imagine you were thrust into a team environment and that would have been very different to working with volunteers. How did that play out?
1: It was interesting because, well, within the team at the time, it was, I think when I graduated, about 22 people in the structures team and I was uh, the only woman. So that was, I guess, the first one of the first challenges was being the only female in the team. Although I will say that my first manager was... Yeah, just great. He was very clear. And even on the first day, he identified it with me. He said, look, I know you're the only woman, but to me, you're a good engineer. You're a bad engineer. Gender means nothing. So he was very direct to the point, but it was really pleasing to me to the fact that he highlighted that, that it didn't mean anything to him. Gender was what it was, but to him, you're a good engineer or you're a bad engineer. And he saw potential that I was the, like I was the good engineer. So he really worked with me to develop that and uh, within that team environment, I always felt supported and I always felt that I could turn to anybody and ask questions and they'd spend the time to to be able to help me. So it was a really good team to start your career with.
0: In your opinion, what makes a team work?
1: To me, a team works if everyone's open and everyone's honest about what they're doing, what they're struggling with and what they need help with. I think there te- has a tendency in some teams to either hide behind your uncertainties and just try to plug away and and hope no one notices, or you have leaders that are too controlling and micromanaging and and dictating everyone so no one has the confidence to actually do what they do. So by having a team environment that shares what they're good at and what they're not or what they're struggling with, um, you'll be able to better help each other and support the weaknesses of others because the most successful team is the diverse team. So you need to have people that have different strengths to be able to support each other and, and deliver the project that you're working
0: on. Now that you're in more leadership roles within the organisations and, and areas that you're working, how do you foster that uh, team building relationship? Because there would be some people who come through with a lot of confidence, perhaps maybe ego. There'd be some other people coming through who've got the skill set, but not the confidence. How do you make that environment um, supportive and nurturing of, of all parties? It's a
1: really interesting question. And I think there's two different realms that I currently operate in. So I am currently volunteering with Engineers Australia and that is in a volunteer capacity. So next year I will be the chair of the Young Engineers National Committee, which I'm very excited about. And one of the key, I guess, starting points for me is meeting with each of the successful applicants who got, num- who got told this week, which is very exciting, uh, and having an individual conversation with them to understand what they want to get out of it Um, what their personal goals are, and then be able to have a team brainstorming session as to, I guess, meet each other, share our individual goals, and then plan the joint goals together. But I understand that that's quite a unique standpoint being the starting of a team. And I guess the starting of a group together, I'd say within the workspace, and I'm in a quite a big team at work, and I'm not in a leadership position within the workplace. But that doesn't mean that you can't encourage team building, especially being at home. So I make an effort to, I guess, talk to individuals within my team, chat with them, see what they're doing from a social standpoint, as well as a work standpoint. We use Microsoft Teams when we communicate. So sometimes it's a a funny meme on a Friday, or if someone posts ensuring to comment or like to be able to build that rapport and make people feel supported. So I think it's just being present, being aware and actively seeking opportunities to communicate with your colleagues, not just around work, but around other aspects. And I think that's something the the pandemic has helped with, is seeing our colleagues as more than just colleagues and seeing our colleagues as
0: people. Working in volunteer organisations or not-for-profits, working in professional or business corporate type of uh, roles as well, what do you think the most important soft skill is for the new generation coming through?
1: Communication
0: communication. Simple as that?
1: Simple as that. I'll preface that. There is a second thing, but communication I think is probably one that's continued um, through and been important at all times. But I think as we're moving towards a, a corporate world where more integrated delivery is happening, more bigger projects where you're working with people in such a broad range of disciplines. And I know at my workplace, it's something that I love about it is the fact that we work with such a diverse range of teams, people, skill sets, but you need to be able to communicate what you're doing. Even if you're doing a design task, you have to be able to communicate what you've done with your manager or with your reviewer. So communication, I think, underlies everything to be a successful engineer is you have to be able to communicate what you're doing with other people. But I'd say the second item, so I, I prefer to say this too, the second is resilience and knowing when you're reaching your limit and knowing when you need to take a break. So especially in a time full of so much uncertainty, I've struggled with mental health and wellbeing over the last three months in particular and knowing when you need to take a break and having that resilience to, I guess, come back and be able to bounce back from different challenges. So the importance of mental health can never be underestimated. And you should feel comfortable to seek help if you need help.
0: What were some of the signs for you that indicated you need to take a break?
1: For me, excessive exhaustion, constantly, constantly feeling tired. But for me, I, I did have a few panic attacks where it's it's difficult to talk about, but I was at a point and I just felt this wave come over me. And I'm quite a confident person that's involved in a lot of different things. And I've had friends that have sought out help in the mental health space, but I never thought it would happen to me. And when it happened, I was a bit shocked. But then at the same time, I'm like, okay, I need to stop. I need to be able to take that break. So for me, it came in the form of exhaustion, but it also came in the point of stress and anxiety where I had so many things in my mind and things were racing and I couldn't get to sleep. And there was just so much happening that I couldn't process and when that happened, talking to my partner, talking to my family, I, I took some time off work if I need a day here, a day there to be able to, to reset and process or took some time out of my volunteering day as well just to be able to make sure I get that break. So it happens to everyone differently in different degrees in different areas, That it's something that you can never, never underestimate and allow yourself and give yourself the time to rest if you need it.
0: In your industry, what's the importance of environmentally sustainable practices?
1: Sustainable practices are becoming more and more important within the construction space. And I can only talk to, I guess, specifically my company at AECOM at the moment. It's becoming central to everything we do. All new projects have to have what we call, it has to have an ESG framework associated with it. It has to have an environmental focus. We're growing our sustainability team it's becoming so crucial to the success of a project and we're really seeing clients respond and clients ask for more sustainable practices to be in place. So it's it's an area that's becoming more and more critical and in the coming years it will be a just an unwritten expectation that all projects have a sustainability lens that's applied so we're lowering emissions, so more selective of material and designs will actually become sustainability by default.
0: Do you think it's the business or the industry that's brought on that change or do you think it's just a response to what the consumers or the customers are coming to you with?
1: It's an interesting one because I think it does come from both sides. I think a lot of consulting businesses in general are driven by client needs and client wants. But I think what I've also seen is, in particular in the areas that I work in, is that the engineers themselves want to improve and want to contribute to a more climate-friendly and climate-smart approaches. So while some of it is driven by client expectations and that obviously helps companies make the decisions to improve, uh, I think it's also driven by the internal engineer within the groups that they actually want to make a difference and this is how they see themselves making an impact.
0: In the projects that you're working on, how are you going about to make sure that they are more sustainable?
1: The initial conversations with clients are really important to be able to understand what the client expectation is. And I know within the housing space, I think there's a minimum six star rating that you have to achieve when you're building different items. We're also looking at, I say, type of materials that we're using. So if we're designing in timber, where's the timber coming from? um, Is it coming locally? What are the emissions that are being emitted through the life cycle? We're also seeing uh, an increase in the modular space. So to be able to see is there design methodologies that we can consider and that's across the industry. Everything that modular does, which is uh, improve the, the quality, improve the construction time, sometimes reduce costs, but reduce materials and wastage and, and site time and things like that. So for me, they're sort of the, the things that I'm personally involved with, the, the modular, the material selection and um, seeing what the embodied energy is throughout the life cycle of a project.
0: Talk to me about your role with we aspire. What do you do?
1: Yeah so we aspire is a new startup business uh, and a leadership development company that is or aims to create the next generation of leaders. So as we know, leadership is changing and what we expect from leaders is changing. You have to have the IQ, the EQ, but there's now an AQ, which is the adaptability quotient and being able to, respond and be resilient to different changes. So We Aspire is a leadership business that works with individuals, corporates, education sector to be able to train, provide training opportunities and in particular practical opportunities to get involved and try out your leadership skills. So there's a range of different products available um, for people to get involved with to Pretend to be an executive for the day, for example, and get real-life feedback from actual executives.
0: So if I give you a call as soon as we're done with this podcast and I say, Nicole, I need that training, I need that leadership experience, what do you come in and do? There's a few different options. So
1: the executive experience day is one of them. So we'll organise, it will probably be um, five or six that we'll organise set in for next year. And that's a day where you rock up and you take on a persona for the day. You'll have to basically do all these things that executives are expected to do and get real-time feedback. But you could also sign up to our We Aspire Central, which is a online platform and network which has a range of feature courses and short courses on different topics that leaders need to know about. And the community that you'll find within the platform, uh, you'll be able to connect with like-minded leaders, hear about leadership stories and different experiences from leaders from around the world.
0: So what do you want to achieve with We Aspire? What's the end goal?
1: The end goal is to have a generation of leaders that support teams to be the best that they can be. It's about creating leaders who are adaptable, resilient, strong in their own sense of self and be able to instill uh, confidence and build a team that feels comfortable with who they are and what they're doing.
0: Is it available to anyone, you know, I'm thinking here students, is that something that would benefit them uh, while they're studying in order to prepare them to become a leader later on in life or does it need to be someone who is out within their career?
1: At the moment, the the target audience is young professionals. In the first few years, you can most definitely get involved but we are working with partnering with different universities to be able to deliver to students as well.
0: How can students get involved in a volunteering capacity with a a not-for-profit?
1: Volunteering for a not-for-profit is not just something that you can do at university. I know that a lot of students volunteer their time at university but feel when they join the workforce, it's no longer an option. I highly encourage those when you're transitioning into the workplace to look for opportunities. So if you're in the engineering space, Engineers Australia is a great place to start, but also look for organisations where you think that you can make a difference. So again, it's figuring out why you do what you do and finding opportunities that align with that. And for sure, volunteering has defined many skills in my skill set and provided me the opportunity to develop those. So I would encourage you, once you enter the workplace, to look for those opportunities to further develop who you are and to give back to society.
0: Where do you think you would be had you not engaged in volunteering organisations?
1: Volunteering is part of who I am. Volunteering is a way that I can give back to society. So I, I couldn't answer that question
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for stopping by and having a chat, Nicole.
1: No problem. Thank you for having me.
0: It's true that volunteering is vital, especially when you're just starting out in your career. Nicole's example shows us that it's possible to find opportunities to grow in your field and start building your career straight after graduating from university. You're listening to the Careers Talk podcast series. Assault Studios production.